are we just going to continue to start these with whether they're classic or not? I probably wouldn't hurt. I'm going to say this one's destined to be a classic. Oh, nice. <laughs> and not just because we're lazy and didn't want to record. <laughs> right. right. Dest destined. It's going to be so good. We we may re-air this one monthly. Oh, just just to make sure everybody remembers. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm feeling it. I'm just feeling this. Nice. Thing. Nice. Good. No <laughs> pressure. So it is... We all get that dopamine hit when, when the phone buzzes, right? We get a text. We all get excited when someone wants to talk to us. Mm -hmm. So usually what James sends me are, are links to disappointing articles about the beer industry. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I'm just like, ooh, someone wants to talk to me. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> what's this? What's this about? <laughs> Mr. Doom and Gloom, everything sucks. Uh, whereas then I, I just hit you back with like a stupid Marvel meme. Yes, you do. Uh, well, you know me. I'm, it's all about confirmation bias. So, oh man, you're leading right. <laughs> oh, you're yeah. leading right into one of the things I want to talk about later. That's beautiful. Yep, yep. That's beautiful. So yes, this one you just sent me from Vice Magazine. I don't know where you get time to read all these things. These are this. So I wake up at like quarter to five every morning. That's stupid. Not because I want to, because my body says you're done. <laughs> wake up, and so I lay in bed and I read my Google news feed. And as you might imagine, there's tons of stuff in my news feed about the beer industry. Mm -hmm. This is where these things come from. See, I've got a Google alert for, for hops and beer and all that too, but mine's, I don't know. Maybe you dive deeper into it. I never find any good ones. Hmm. Lately, it's all about, you know, you know, volume of cans available and, and CO2 and. Oh, there's plenty of that. Oh, there's plenty of that. There's. A fair amount of that going on, certainly. So, this, so this one you sent from Vice Magazine, dated September seventh. I spent the day in a giant brew dog and saw the depressing future of pubs. Exactly. <laughs> and this was actually a pretty fun article. I, I I enjoyed the writer's style and tone because it was uh he was just fun. He was fun, but the the central point behind it all was that a lot of the little pubs, a lot of the little bars are are going under and he's starting to see these chain establishments coming up and, and a little, I, I got the feel this was a little different than, you know, a Buffalo wild wings, for example, which is a food establishment that has a couple of beers on tap. These are, are meant to be brewery replacements or, or bars, but with a similar McDonald's ish theme when you go into them in different cities. Correct. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> it's, it's it's the hard rock of yeah. the brewing scene. I, I it boggles my mind. My wife and I do a considerable amount of traveling, and it's like every place we go, there's a hard rock almost, and it's like packed with Americans. Why? <laughs> yeah, you can do that anywhere. Uh, exactly. Why? Why do you need to go get a bad American hamburger when you're in Prague? <laughs> it's stupid it, it's so funny you say that so my my son just came back a few weeks ago he spent three and a half weeks in scotland and ireland with with a bunch of scouts and he said like once or twice they were touring places and some of the other kids were like oh look there's a burger king there's a mcdonald's and and he's going why in god's name would i walk into that place when i'm here mm -hmm. you know, that place is selling something that i don't recognize that's what i'm gonna eat right i love it that's what you should do Enjoy the fun yeah. and the different. But yeah, so he, he had a really interesting article here about, um, and again, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, 
looking at this brew dog place, which was what did he call it? The general vibe is that it's basically a cross between a WeWork, an airport bar, and a twenty four seven supermarket. <laughs> and that is awesome. I, I love that. I, I, my brain is having trouble getting around that imagery, but but I do get it. Oh, and then yep. you know, someone rebuilt the Tottenham IKEA, but the theme was Shortage twenty ten to present day. <laughs> or if you typed in East London hipster tech startup, but a pub. <laughs> so awesome. With an original score by Mumford and Sons. <laughs> yep. So awesome. Brilliant. Brilliant. I, I want to meet, the, I want to drink with this guy, actually. I, I've decided that. It's just sometimes you can just tell. And you to- Well, I mean, he absolutely is somebody I want to drink mm-hmm. with. There's one line in there that I really loved Uh-oh. in that whole article. All right. That's the one about the blood orange IPA. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you have it in front uh, of you by chance? Yes. Yes. I don't um, remember exactly what it was, but it was awesome. I, I started with a beer called Lost in Blood Orange because blood orange is my favorite fruit. Okay, now i got to breathe and see if I can say this line. Although it basically tasted like you, you were drinking the piss of someone who had drunk two cartons of blood orange juice. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's what is happening to the craft beer scene. Uh-huh. <laughs> Fantastic. You know what? I'm going to send this guy a note and see if he wants to be on the podcast. Yeah, you ought to. <laughs> yep. Yep. Because this is just fun. Absolutely fun. Uh, but he has an, another line here, which I thought was so interesting. They've tapped into the ever-expanding white-collar idea that there should be very little difference between your work life, your social life, and your home life since the pandemic. Since you're going to spend the majority of your life working or at least pretending to, why not stop pretending you can escape it and just let the pretend work flow into all other aspects of your life? And it's a really interesting observation because this is – look, I've been known on a Friday or a Tuesday to take my laptop and head down to Reverie and work there Mm -hmm. because I can. Right. this this idea that uh, it gets back to the third space that we've talked about, and, and you mm-hmm. know during the pandemic the third space was home. You 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 drank at home because that's where you could be, and you tried to create pockets in your house that were away from your computer. Um, this is a whole different way of looking at it, and this is a a bar but a repeatable experience. So you can just have that comfort of home or comfort of work, of familiarity, wherever you are. I mean, look, people have been working on their laptops and coffee houses for the last 25 years, right? So this whole idea of working from a retail establishment is not new. And the fact that there happens to be beer there instead of coffee, I guess it doesn't surprise me. That doesn't bother me at all. Right, that concept of yeah, go to a, go to the pub and work. You can go to the coffee shop and work, and somehow that's okay. What does disturb me is the McDonald'sification of craft brewing. Now, granted, I, I, there's probably some sort of algorithm or theory or principle in like economics and business development that says this is inevitably what's going to happen <laughs> in, in an industry that has as much explosive growth as what we've seen. But it makes me sad. It, it feels like some of the more comedic post-apocalyptic movies where, you know, everyone eats the same slurry for breakfast, lunch, and dinner because it's, it's more efficient this way. <laughs> right. You know? Now, I mean, I'm not – this concept is not new. I mean, like, Fuller's has chain of their own pubs 
and smaller restaurants all over London. So one might beg the question, why is that different than what BrewDog's doing? Well, if you go into one of those Fuller's pubs, it's a it's a pub. Right? <laughs> right. There's no there's no freaking ping pong tables or or Zoom pods mm-hmm. or any of that kind of stuff. It's a place you want to go to get away from the work that you were doing. I don't know why one would set up an establishment where you would want your patrons to be having a good time to be there and not be able to to decompress because the expectation is you're going to be working all the time anyway. Right, right. And there are there are pictures here of him. In, he's There are Zoom pods at this place. There's an ice cream truck out front. There's duck pin bowling in the basement. <laughs> and, there's a, and there's a slide because I know I want to be the employee responsible for cleaning out that slide. <laughs> right. It's oh, everything. It, it is the antithesis of the dark corner bar. Mm-hmm. And he 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 ends the article saying, and I think this is really interesting. I really don't know what any of this is for, or why we've decided this is now going to be the default idea of socializing. Mm-hmm. But to be fair, it was rammed from the minute I stepped in, sometime in the afternoon, to the minute I left at dark. Yeah, and I don't get it. H- have we forgotten over the pandemic how to be social creatures? I think so. I think I think that's what it is now. Like I've said multiple times, I've been an old man since I was like 12. Mm-hmm. So I was the kid who liked to hang out at the campground around the campfire with the old people talking and not running around the woods somewhere. So I'm weird. Okay. I get it. But yeah, why, why, why? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you don't think we'll have a chain of dark corner bars? No, no. It's nope. a solitary experience, quite literally and figuratively. Literally, literally and figuratively, and it will be a destination. Mm-hmm. That's how. That's that's what you want. You know what? I don't. I don't want to be the king of cubic zirconia. <laughs> I want to be. <laughs> I want to be. You know, the Hope Diamond. <laughs> it's interesting that you're calling it a destination, and they're trying here to create the experience for people that need the experience handed to them. The the dark corner bar is about. We're going to give you the destination. You come here and make your experience. Yeah, it's it's probably too much pressure for them. For that, they just mm-hmm. they want to be they want to be handed everything. That's exactly right. I want some for the people who would come to the dark corner bar, look around and go, "I'm bored." That's why <laughs> you need to have an AARP card to get in the dark Ooh, corner bar. Yes, <laughs> yes, you're, and and every every Tuesday, we'll let people in that are too young to have one, and you get a free. A free sippy sippy cup and juice box when you come in. And do they have to contribute to uh, to Social Security? Of yes. course. Yeah, I, I think I think it comes down to if you're if you're bored when you're not being given something to do, you're boring. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's like that whole thing. I'd love to say I've tried nothing and I'm all out of ideas. Entertain me. Yeah. So there so there will be no duck pin bowling at the dark corner bar. No duck pin bowling. No. Can we have a dartboard? Uh, of course. But it's got to be lazy darts. We Have we talked about lazy darts? Yes. Okay. Just to remind everyone, lazy darts means there's a couch where the dart throwing line would be. You sit there. <laughs> you tie a string. There will be a, several spools of different types of strings and ropes and yarns. And you tie a string to your dart so you can throw it from a seated position and yank it back to you. And next, and next to the string, there will be a box of Band-Aids. The only games that will be in the dark corner bar will be those that are traditionally associated with British pubs. Mm. 
So there will be darts. There will the be the little triangle thing with the pins in it. That uh, yep, and then the the shuffleboard uh, with the sawdust on it is a little oh yeah all bearings that you that you roll yet will be one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, everything else get out. Nice. When do we open? <laughs> well, why don't you? I told you we ought to start one of those one of those uh, GoFundMe things, and people can be equity punks like Brewdog and, you know, invest in the dark corner. Are those the people that we want, though? Well, anybody listening to this podcast okay, that's fair. So, is okay by me, I guess. That's fair. More more details forthcoming on how to invest in the dark corner bar. <laughs> you bet. Man, if I see anyone steal this idea from us before we're ready, I'm going to be pissed. We've uh, have it our idea out there in a public space before they do. So True. we could, we could see. We also know who everyone else is listening. We know, we know yeah. both of them. So yeah. it's not gonna be a problem. We just have to have a special master assigned to our case. All right. So my, so my takeaway from this first portion here is that I'm going to reach out to this guy and see if he wants to talk to us. Cause he's, he's a great, yeah. I like, I love his writing style. Exactly. Uh, Give us a reason to go to London. Oh, there we go. I like, I need a reason. So I have in front of me the latest new brewer. You know what we say. We read it so you don't have to. Nice. And in this case, I read it so even James doesn't have Yay! to. Yay! Because James has been too busy to even think lately. So so, so I'm going to tell you what went on in, in this month's issue here. and You're, you're, you're going to laugh. <laughs> uh, some very interesting articles in here on um, operational efficiency, which I want to talk about. There are tiers of operational efficiency because mm-hmm. there's, there's something in particular in there you're going to be very happy with. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a very good article on hiring bias. Oh, nice. Yeah, which which there are five components of, of how they define it as hiring bias, which covers some of the biases we've talked about before, but there are some new ones in there. Mm-hmm. But the one comparison point I want to mention, there is a two-page article on beer stability and freshness. Interesting. And it's about temperature and pH and oxidation, um, p- pump speeds during the whirlpool phase, mm-hmm. like how to, how to watch for things. That is two pages long. Yeah. The article on Bavarian style IPAs, however, fucking hell, is is five pages long. Bavarian style IPAs, yet a, yes. yet another IPA style that no one needs. Uh huh. Yep. So I, I saw that and I laughed and I laughed and I laughed. And and it talks about the heritage of IPAs and of course the whole, you know, took a long time on the boat to get the da, da, da. um the, the stories we've all heard. That's all bullshit. Anyway. Uh, of, yeah, I, I know it's all bullshit. That's why I laugh when I see it. Um, you know, a Bavarian style IPA, a variation on a classic English beer style. So here's the part that I highlighted that I can't wait to read to you. I wish I had video right now. Um, he, he, he goes into, uh, I say he, I didn't actually see who who wrote this article, um, and if it is uh, someone of the male or female persuasion, but um, his name's Thomas. I'm going to go with male. He talks about all the different kinds of IPAs, sessions and milkshakes and pastries and fruited and black and da-da-da-da. Consumers can now find not only original English-style IPAs on retail shelves and bar tabs, but also other IPA styles from geographically specific crossover connotations, such as American West Coast and hazy, juicy, fruity New England IPAs. So here's my highlighted line. The terroir of the hops is often the most significant differentiator among the various IPA crossover identities. Mm. Is it now? <laughs> Would you? <laughs> oh, you're taking a sip of coffee so you can... Uh... <laughs> Calm down or let it all loose on lubric- that one. lubricating my throat here so I can 
start on my diatribe. I I guarantee you the person that wrote that could not tell one hop variety from another if I gave it to him in a blind test. So don't tell me about terroir is so impactful in these beer styles because that's a bunch of horse shit. Made me happy when I read that. (laughs) It was written by the co-CEO of of Weirman Specialty Malting in Bamberg, Germany. Great. Oh my! Anyway, just goes terroir. just goes to show you that even those sorts of people don't know what the hell they're talking about. I I I freaking love it. I love it. I, I saw that and I just went, oh, something to talk about with James. Get his blood boiling early in the morning. Mm. Fantastic. So the the other two big articles here that were both quite interesting, as I mentioned, one was on operational efficiency, and one was on hiring bias. So let let's let's hit the operational efficiency first. Mm-hmm. And they talk about six tips, six tips, they call it, for breweries of all sizes. And you can imagine the, the picture spread is showing, you know, lots of, of well-delineated and marked kegs and cans and, and lots of team meetings where everyone looks very, very serious. Mm-hmm. You know, they're having important conversations. But they talk about the fact that, like, operations is one of those things that not everyone has a dedicated operations person, which is kind of, you know, especially a small brewery. Right. You got the head brewer. You got the guy who runs the books. And maybe you have someone who does social media. Maybe. Yep. <laughs> and there you go. Um, and they talk about how important operations in, is here, and they talk about six components of an operational strategy. And and these all make a heck of a lot of sense. Uh, one of them surprised me in a good way. Okay. So they start off with, with having a, a, a understood and coherent leadership structure. And it will duh. Coherent. Right? Coherence the problem. <laughs> I, I think I actually inserted the word coherent oh, there. Okay, but right. you know, we one of our very early episodes, it'll probably be coming up soon in the in the classic realm, was about um a business plan and your team and building your team yep. and talking about the roles and responsibilities and and especially in a small operation, whether it's a small brewery or a small uh, hop farm, those you tend to start blending those things together. Uh, we've talked a lot about the the dangers of assuming sales and marketing are the same thing, <laughs> right? So exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so so leadership structure being their their primary one. The, the the very next one, and I wish big companies would understand this, is sharing knowledge. Huh. You know, making sure everyone's on the same page, and knowledge flow. And you and I both know, both of us working at big companies. Jesus. Where do I <laughs> yeah, begin? <laughs> exactly. Com- communication is not a strong suit, <laughs> usually. Every company I've ever worked for, big or small, one of the every year they have their leadership summit. One of the one of the outcomes is always better communication, mm-hmm. and nobody knows what the hell that means. They they do a, a very nice job. I don't I don't even know who wrote this one. They do a very nice job with this article in that you, you and I have both talked about this. The way the way to present information is to tell people what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you just told them. And these six sections, they don't do the, the pre-tell them what you're going to tell them, but each of these six sections ends with takeaways, kind of like your little summary. And the very first takeaway on the share knowledge section is think through what would happen if one of your key employees suddenly became available without warning. Mm-hmm. Like what information needs to be disseminated so that if if you lost the, you know, that, that whole, it's, it's nicer to say won the lottery as opposed to got hit by a truck, but it's the same concept. Right. They're gone. Yep. Can you can you function today? If not, you have a communication gap. Um, the the next one is tracking your your data. It, it's really about inventory more than anything else. But oh man, 
post-it notes are not a business strategy. <laughs> <laughs> if you post-it notes, that, that's a step above where I see a lot of certainly startup breweries. They're not. Yeah, fair it's enough. Not even post-it notes. It's like, well, I told you that four weeks ago. Why didn't you do it? Yeah, or it's written on your hand, but it's smudged because yeah. you know you got all sweaty. And that that is more often than not, I see brewers writing on their hands all the time. The next one is having an employee handbook, which I was surprised to see that in a top six list because that's there are so many very large companies that have one, but it's old and it's not really relevant anymore. Mm. That that's a that's a very deep cut in my mind. We had one at Gorse Valley Hops, so mm-hmm. one of our employees, one of her. I think it was a minor. She had a minor in human resources uh, as part of her degree. And she's like, we need a employee manual. I'm like, okay, (laughs) do it. (laughs) And so she did. She wrote it. It was really well done. And about how we handle, you know, temporary labor and what does it mean to be a contractor versus blah, 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 blah. And it was all part of their employment agreement. And it was very well done. And we were tiny. You know, we didn't have that many. What did we have? Four full-time employees, maybe. Maybe, so, yeah. But we had 50 part-time employees, and so it became important to be able to clarify uh, those aspects. It's it, it's a good, it's a very good thing to have, and I, I suspect it's the kind of thing that once you have it, you, you, you never don't have it again. Well, and the, the pitfall there is making sure that it's updated. Right. Much like your business plan. <laughs> You're like, yes, wow, yes. that took a lot of work. I'm glad I don't have to do that again. Uh, but you do <laughs> until next year yeah and you, you probably are. update it when a que- an unanswerable question arises and you're like oh maybe that should be updated in the handbook or you need to go borrow money yeah it's like oh. oh yeah i need to update those those projections <laughs> so i'm going to skip number five and come back to it because it's my favorite one and it's it's one of the reasons i love this article so much okay. um but the last one here also so important hold regular all hands meetings yep and no matter how big you are, it, it, it comes back to the communication thing and making sure everyone understands what the goals are. They're on the same page. It fosters so much team building to have everyone together and feel like they're part of the solution and not just grabbed and pulled into an office when they're part of the problem. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a huge thing. So number five, I was so pleased to see this. Build a sensory program. Ha, I have two entire textbooks on that. <laughs> And, and and how I mean how often have we talked about how lacking that can be? Yep. Uh, and and the takeaways on this one, she says, you know, build a simple a simple sensory program from day one that requires a modest time commitment, and make sure it not only helps you build quality products and consistency, but also team spirit. Right. So important. Mm-hmm. So incredibly important, and I think so lacking. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. It doesn't have to be complicated. Right. And it's not like you need a sensory program for every step. Like I need a sensory for my raw, my malts and I need one for my hops. And, you know, I've got, no, 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 don't. That's like graduate school stuff. Right. Start with just a sensory program on your beer and a seller sensory program where you're taking retains from the same beer that you brewed a year ago and tasting it now. And how well did it age and blah, 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 that kind of simple stuff. And it doesn't have to take long. It can take 10 minutes, mm-hmm. you know, at the start of a work day, you know, say we're going to do this once a month on a Friday and we're all going to make our notes. And then somebody takes another 10 minutes to enter that data into a, probably a spreadsheet 
it, now you have a rudimentary sensory program. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, it's important for the customer-facing folks so they know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, every, everyone thinks they know what they're talking about. Right. But And for the folks behind the scenes to be part of that process and feel proud of their product, it's such, a, such an important thing. Yeah. Look for opportunities, certainly in the sensory space, for continued education for your people. Because what good is a sensory program if nobody really knows what the hell they're talking about? What are they looking for? The number of people that, like even at Siebel, that the when we get to the hop sensory analysis part, and we start, I, I tried to talk to them about how to tear apart these different levels of, of aromas and what to look for. And some people get it. They're like, okay, yeah, I can do that. I can totally see where this is. And other people are like, I got nothing. It smells like hops. And like, how are you a brewer? I mean, how, <laughs> what the hell? You need to learn how to do this because you, right. that you're not going to be able to understand when something goes wrong with your beer, right? There are also a few times I've been in there with those same people where we're doing the off flavor mm-hmm. analysis where they're just like, yeah, I don't get, I don't get anything. I'm like, wow, you are, you are sensory blind. <laughs> wow. And, and how, and if you can't tell the off flavors, uh, and look, I, we, we've established that I'm not great at sensory. Right. I mean, I'm like yum beer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> smells like lactose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's a, but that's a, yeah. that's a t-shirt. <laughs> smells, smells like lactose <laughs> or yum beer. It smells both. like, smells like lactose. <laughs> smells like lactose. I want to say it's not the first time I've said You're that. Probably not, but. <laughs> might not be the first time I've said that today. Uh, Yes, but yeah. Oh, to to be a, a brewing professional and not be able to to understand the off flavors—that's scary. Mm-hmm. That is scary. So yeah, I I thought I, I seeing sensory just just made my my eyes widen because it is so left out so often. Yep. So so reiterating those six: it's leadership structure, sharing knowledge, tracking your data, having an employee handbook, sensory, and regular all hands on meetings. Anything missing there that an operations person should be paying attention to? Aside from the standard, just general operations efficiencies type of stuff. Uh, but at, at a very small scale, that becomes, I think, less important to focus on than the, as you would say, the general blocking and tackling, which yep. is what this article is talking about. I mean, when you get bigger, the ops function grows to look at raw material supply. I mean, literally doing things like Lean Six Sigma in your facility to streamline processes and reduce risks, identify your risk points, what are your mitigations, all that kind of stuff. But that's like way down the path. Yep. I I was, and there's some of that here in there with what they call the track inventory and data side of things. There's some of it. Yeah. Um, I was surprised that there was no mention of, of, of QC at all. That's true. Um, and maybe they're not thinking of that as an op, an ops function. Maybe they're thinking of that as something different. Yeah, um, yeah, maybe because that's that's going to be heavy analytical laboratory stuff. Part of that is going to be part of the brewing process, so I wouldn't see why you wouldn't put it in ops. But maybe they just, you know, if it's written by a, a hardcore ops person, QC is probably out of their patch anyway. It, it it probably is, and as I look, this was written by. Um a woman who is the health, the employee health and safety specialist for Canarchy. Yeah. Yeah. So EH and S. Yep. Yep. So more, more on an HR side of, of things, but, uh, good advice, very good advice. And I, I loved 
the sensory program piece. Just I, I was so encouraged to see that being called out because there are probably some very large breweries reading this going, yeah, we should do more of that. Yep. Yeah, and and having a blind taste test at the Christmas party is not a sensory program, just to be clear. No, especially <laughs> after you've had all those uh, garlic stuffed mushrooms. And uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. How, how many times have I posted something on the Discord and right after having like a glass of lemonade yeah. and I'm like, this, this beer tastes funny. Like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, maybe it was all those pennies I was sucking on earlier. I don't know. <laughs> yes, you know me and my pennies. You do. Penny finish. Oh, I, I have a problem. Penny finish. Wasn't that the name of your of your uh, punk rock cover band? It was. Yeah, it was. Yes. Penny fetish. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm writing that one down, too. I don't know. In two weeks, we're not going to remember what the hell Penny Fetish meant. Oh, two weeks. You're generous. But, yeah, that's probably just when the coffee wears off. Mm-hmm. All right, so so the last piece in here, which I, it was a very interesting issue um, this, this time around, um, all about hiring bias. And, of course, they talk a bit about cultural stereotypes, which you would expect them to, but it goes beyond that. And they talk about these other types of hiring bias, which I thought were, were so interesting. So, of course, this confirmation bias, which we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. This is the idea that you already you already think you have the answer, and you're just you're you're stretching and looking for confirmation of the answer. Right. Let's see here. I need to put this in front of me, but not in front of the microphone. Uh, <laughs> um, aff- affinity bias. Okay. Is one of the ones we haven't talked about before, and that's the idea of hiring people who are like you. People who've got the same background as you that just kind of click with you as being similar to you. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't really do much for you in terms of bringing new and fresh ideas into the organization, does it? It, it doesn't. But as a person who does a lot of hiring, I, 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 will, I will refrain from commenting until the end. Okay, fair enough. Um, then this halo effect. Uh, when you've got someone who's really good at something... And you make the assumption that's going to make them good at the thing you want them to do. Mm. And granted, a person who is a motivated and go-getter and is skilled at the things they do, that, that sometimes is, an, is a correct assumption to make, mm-hmm. but not always. So you could have someone who's got a lot of great background in what you're trying to hire for, but there's someone else who's just more energetic, more exciting, you know, just just won a marathon. And you're like, you know what? That's the person I want, yeah. not the person who actually has the experience. And that's th- that can be a dangerous path. Yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Anchoring bias. I, I had never heard of this before, but this is really a fancy way of saying, a uh, you know, you can never re- to redo a first impression. Right. Anchoring bias is that very first experience you have with the person, the first thing they tell you about themselves or you see about them. You know, they walk in and there's a piece of food and, you know, on their beard that they're brushing off. You know, you never get that out of your head. That's true. Um, and, and yeah, and, and you got to let that stuff go sometimes. Um, they talk about it more in a positive sense that, you know, something really good about them can make you not listen to the rest of the stuff that, that maybe is not optimal. But it, it's that first impression piece. Mm-hmm. And then there's consensus bias, which is letting yourself get swayed by other people. Yeah. When you've got a group, uh, a group interview process, which is, you know, that's that groupthink is hard to avoid in any capacity. It is, and more and more, the well, certainly in the corporate world, it's very rarely is it a singular interviewer. You know, I mean, they may not all be in the same same room at the same time, but uh, you'll have multiple people on a panel and then a, a debrief, so to speak. 
uh, and that can be that can be difficult to to make a decision in that environment when you might feel pressure from one side or the other. You know those people that that you ask to be on your panel to make a uh, recommendation, but this is not about that. <laughs> that's that's my other podcast. Oh yes, of course. There's always another one. Mm-hmm. So you said so. Those are the five, the five what they call lesser known types of hiring bias, uh, which are interesting. I mean, they're all they all require you to be a lot more open minded. You can get a. This is why I think most companies have a form you've got to fill out with with weighting different skill sets, so that you have kind of a rubric panel and and you score people so that you can minimize some of these small things that might emotionally push you towards someone or away from someone. Mm-hmm. But but you were saying before you were going to reserve commentary <laughs> as, a, as a comment. I don't I don't hire very much at all anymore. I'm very much a uh, kind of more of a team lead and and solo person. I end up on a lot of interview schedules because they want to know if people can do simple math and they ask me to check that on them. <laughs> Uh, and it's disturbing how many of them can't right. and how and how little the interview team cares when I tell them that they can't right. because, you know, but but they were cool. Like, they can't do simple math. Let's, well, we'll give them a chance. Anyway, that's, that's my problem. It I will is. let you speak now. Oh, wow. Thanks. How gracious of you. Uh, my perspective on that is the following. Even at Gorse Valley, it was the basics of, do you know how to run a tractor? Do you know how to, you know, so there's, there's all like the, the base job requirements, right? Mm -hmm. Job description requirements. And frankly, if I can't tell that from a resume, I'm not paying attention. So by the time the person, I, they get to an interview stage, I'm reasonably confident they have the skills to at least do the minimum that's required. Okay. So I'm not interested in that anymore. Frankly, when I'm when I'm talking to them, I want to know who they are because ultimately, at least the current world I'm in now, right? You all know I'm in biotech, but it's a in biopharma industry, super high pressure, super fast paced environment, and I'm looking for things like how well they perform under stress, and do they have the right attitude? Because if you've got people that are, you know, they've got all the skills down on paper, but what you find out is that they are petrified by change and it's like freak out because somebody moved their cheese. I can't have that on my team mm-hmm. because it's going to be no end of, of drama and me trying to manage that. And that's not what I need, but how do you, how do you represent that on a resume? You can't. So I'm much less about the, the hard skill sets and more about the having the right fit of person. When, again, when you're in that high-pressure, fast-paced environment, you got to know, and you're trying to build a team, you've got to know that those personalities are going to click. That's what I'm most focused on. How do I engage with them in a conversation, a discourse, so that I get a sense for who they really are and how they're going to mesh with my team? Yep. That's what I'm looking for. I've had dozens of people that come through, yeah, they have the skills. Would they work? Yeah, they would probably work. But I know in six months, it's just going to be nothing but Sweet Valley High drama town. So, uh, Sweet Valley High. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just like, no, I'm not. There's got to be somebody else. There's mm-hmm. got to be another person that meets those uh, aspects that I'm really looking for. And, and you know, I think something that's at least not very 
openly talked about in this article, but occurs to me. I mean, you said it's got to be somebody else. Depending on how the job market is flowing, it is so often we we say, okay, we, we've got two candidates in. We have to hire one of them. We need someone, regardless of whether they're each the right person. I won't do it. Yeah, I've been. You're, you're rare in that sense. I've been to be stung too many times mm-hmm. because I know that the onboarding I'm going to have to do with them, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and the effort I'm going to have to take to get them up to speed, truly onboarded in in my environment takes a year, and so that's a lot of effort to put behind somebody to know that no, I need somebody in here now to push a button. Well, then I'm going to review my process to make it so that maybe I don't have to push that button before I try and hire somebody because I need a body. Anyway. Yeah, it's it's you're a better man than most, Charlie Brown. Um. Well, that's nothing. To do. I don't think it has anything to do about better. It's it's all about about me knowing that I'm going to screw myself if I do this. Mm-hmm. And so I've again listened to my learned to listen to my gut over the years, and sometimes I'll I'll be like, this doesn't feel right. And every time I go against that feeling, I get screwed. So yep. stop it. And so I just do. Now I do. And then my current boss, um, he, he and I have been around. He and I have been around uh, for a while, and uh, in different industries too. And he's the same way. And he's just like, "What do you think?" I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too." But <laughs> but we're in a position where we need somebody. And I said, "Do you need them that bad? Where you're going to have to redo this all over again in six months?" He goes, "No." Nope. Right. <laughs> I'm like, there you go. <laughs> it, it it's tough. It's very tough. Um, and I've I've seen it happen. I've been in very understaffed organizations where it's just we need you know a body. It's taken us four months to get anyone to bite on this job interview. Uh, they seem like they'd be able to 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 learn their way into it. Let's take a chance. Right. I've heard that so many times. And uh, my I have another. It's sort of like, oh, they work or they won't. But the damage that that individual can do in the six to nine to 12 months they're in oh, that position horrible. is awful. Yes. So a lot of it has to come down. It comes down to, well, I don't want to tell people no. I don't want to be have this, you know, conflict. So, yeah, we'll interview them. Okay. I need somebody. We'll just deal with it. No, don't. Mm-hmm. That's bad. That's that's more of an internal organizational bias than it is a an individual interview bias. I would agree. So... Yeah, so it was a, uh, it was actually a very full and fundamentally good new brewer this. Uh, I was gonna say this month, but this bi month, it's bi monthly. Mm-hmm. I did not read the news and notes from the craft malt conference. I, I ended up or, or the brewing with hemp article because I didn't care to. Uh, yeah, that's dumb. Yeah, <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Brewing with hemp is dumb. Film film at eleven. Post-it notes are not a business strategy. <laughs>